0: Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash cfrc.
1: You are listening to Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM, Queen's University's International Affairs Radio Show. Broadcasting from Queen's University campus, Right of Reply is produced by members of the Queen's International Affairs Association. By featuring unique personal experiences, perspectives and dialogue, we aim to make international issues and events more accessible and engaging for members of the Queen's and Kingston communities. Today's show features two interviews about Indigenous experiences in Canada and around the world, The first interview is with Richard Day, this year's Global Development Undergraduate Chair. I talked to Professor Day about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, its adoption by certain countries with Indigenous populations, and how these countries have chosen, or not chosen, to put its tenets into effect. We also discuss the Western hegemonic order, and the concept that we, as non-Aboriginal Canadians, are settlers on Indigenous land. The second interview is with Queen's History Professor Peter Campbell, In our conversation, we focused on the experience of Aboriginal peoples in Canada, beginning with unfair treaty processes, and culminating in events in recent memory, like the Oka crisis, as well as Attawapiskat Chief Teresa Spence's current hunger strike. A little more context will be provided in the interviews themselves, so here is my interview with Queen's Professor Richard Day. So, um, I'll be talking to Peter Campbell about the Canadian Aboriginal experience, but... The mandate of our show, we are like an international affairs radio show, and I, I did, I wanted to talk about aboriginal issues because of what's going on in Ottawa right now with Chief Spence's hunger yeah. strike, uh, and, and other things with the I No not know more movement kind of burgeoning. Um, but I did want to bring it back to our mandate, which is international mm-hmm. experiences. Um, so firstly, I'd like to bring up the United Nations Declaration mm. on uh, the Rights of Indigenous peoples. So Canada adopted it in 2010, but that was after a certain amount of struggle. Uh, it was first introduced, passed by the UN General Assembly in 2007. Uh, and by December, uh, this was in September, by December, the uh, Assembly of First Nations of Canada had passed a motion uh, pressuring the government of Canada to, uh, to adopt it. So... Similarly, New Zealand adopted the de- declaration in 2010, after the country's minister for Maori affairs actually issued, called it toothless in 2007. Mm-hmm. So what accounts for, and not just in Canada, but elsewhere, what accounts for this discrepancy between government opinion or government policy and indigenous groups?
0: Wow. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a question with uh, at least 500 yeah. years of, yeah. of, of history. Um, the shortest answer I can think of is that the, the nation-states of, of the settler world um, share common commitments to a global capitalism, mm-hmm. to, to uh, Western Eurocentrism, to the hegemony of a certain set of values that, that come out of Europe. And from their perspective, uh, Indigenous peoples stand in the way of, mm-hmm. of what um, they desire. They want the land. The land is like substrate to them. Well, it is for all of us, right? Um, in the same way that everybody wants to put more RAM into their computer, where you have an empire, um, the equivalent to RAM is land, and bodies. You want bodies and land, and various other mm-hmm. so-called resources. So, what, it, what Indigenous people will tend to do is get in the way of the expansion of empire,
2: mm-hmm.
0: of the Euro-colonial game. And so, at the same time, so there's that pressure, which is the pressure towards genocide and, and, and various other modes of, of trying to deal with this problem from the perspective of Uh, the hegemonic order the other thing is that this order has a a fantasy that it's a humanitarian lovely bunch of people that it proceeds based on reason and justice and all of these other ideals that also come out of europe so while you're doing the bad deeds you have to look as though you're doing good deeds um Hence the civilizational mission. Um, this is still going on, for example, in Bolivia right now with the of the road mm-hmm. through this indigenous territory that Evo Morales, who's, you know, throughout the world by radical types like myself, are plotting yay, the first indigenous, you know, president, yay, isn't that fantastic? Um, not really, because he's mm-hmm. a cocalero. He he's not a traditional mm-hmm. guy at all. He's part of the group of people who actually have a strong vested interest in going in, colonizing that place. Right. That's why they're running the road through it, putting up uh, their coca plantations and joining, making money on the global right. capitalist scale. So you have the will uh, towards the, we must continue like the, the colonization of the entire world by Euro-capitalist state empire, and we must do this in such a way that it appears as though we're doing a good thing. And this is in the shortest possible <laughs> yeah. analysis how I would yeah. answer that question.
1: Do you think that governments are privy to what they're doing, or are they under their own facade?
0: I think it doesn't matter. The way that I like to talk about this, uh, and we're getting into the sort of you know the conspiracy theory thing, is if I say they know what's going on, then... The, the the equivalent to climate change deniers in, mm-hmm. in the settler world, great term, upsettlers, right? Mm-hmm. No, this happened years ago, why should I, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it doesn't matter in the same way that it doesn't matter if you ask, do drops of water falling from the sky know that they're going to end up in the ocean?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's a force called gravity that affects all of them, it constrains and conditions the possibilities for their mode of life, of being. Mm-hmm. Drops of water fall on the land and head for the ocean. Capitalists arrive and do terrible. They they are on this earth. They do terrible things to everybody, but to their own people and to themselves, but particularly to the land and mm-hmm. indigenous people. They are they are acting just like a tiger does when it takes out a gazelle. This, this is, and I don't want to reduce it to sociobiology, but it, and it's still a discursive level that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but this is what they do. This is what they must mm-hmm. do. Whether they, quote, know it or not, is ultimately irrelevant, yeah. I believe. Uh, it, because there's no way to enlighten folks. And myself, I participate in this as well. Look, I'm I think I'm pretty enlightened, but, you know, here I am driving around in my car and teaching at Queen's and being a settler on native land. So... You know, it's not like there's a they we could ever locate who don't know. We are them. I, as a settler, am implicated all day, every day. And all I can do is try to change how I live.
1: Right. Now, just to, to get back to the Declaration, um, do you think the governments have... Do, what is your opinion of it, first of all?
0: So, uh, anything anyone does to try and decolonize anything anywhere, I applaud. Right. Step one. All, all things people try to do are great. Anything but apathy, I support. Mm -hmm. I see this as uh, obviously a very uh, state-centric mode of trying to achieve change. Um, The United Nations is a unity of nations, i.e. states. It's a supra-state institution. um, And it hasn't had a great history of actually doing Mm -hmm. anything very useful. It is in the pocket primarily of the United States and its allies, but through the veto system, it's in the pocket of those nations which are most, quote, powerful. Um, so not a lot can be achieved there in, in any practical sense, but the, um, the symbolic value mm. of this sort of thing uh, for future activities, I think, is extremely important. Okay. At least we got this far. Mm-hmm. At least there was an idea that, A, indigenous peoples exist. B, that they're peoples... See, they have rights, and there are lots of critiques of that idea. But again, within that kind of forum, which is dominated by European ideas like rights, it's it's got potential. It's it's the best one could hope for at the UN.
1: Right now, it's not a binding agreement. No, but have governments such as Canada, and New Zealand, Latin American governments, Australia, have they done anything to meet its so-called requirements?
0: Not to the best of my knowledge. Right. No. And and, I mean, they've already got their own policies, you know, like, and and, I mean, it's differential, you know, in in New Zealand, for example, Maori representation is built into the Constitution in a way that, you know, we do not have in Canada and never will have, I'm pretty sure. Um, So, you know, it's a different deal there. Australia's another different deal. Um, But I'd say what they have in common is that this is something that you pretty much, you know, they've all been forced to sign on to. Like you say, it took time. Uh, to actually implement what is contained there would mean to destroy themselves as capitalist mm-hmm. nation-states. They cannot do it and remain who and what they are.
1: Now, so Canada did say that it the agreement was kind of not conducive to... or not... conducive isn't the right word. It didn't really mesh with the Charter and other aspects of Canadian constitutional law because we... In Canada are wary of acknowledging collective rights so just you touched on representation there in New Zealand how does Canada fare in that regard and others
0: well okay first of all the idea of rights as I mentioned before is a Eurocentric concept and there are the God-given rights the natural rights the state-given rights I'm very suspicious of, the, uh, of, this, of this concept in general, so when I'm going to use the word, it's going to be under scare quotes that people yeah. out there can't see, and I won't bother doing them. Um, the question, as soon as you bring someone into the discourse of rights, you've already sucker-punched them, and particularly with Indigenous people. Um, there's a whole different paradigm about the relation of the individual to the collective, um, the relation of individuals and collectives to the state form, um to the land so we're 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 really in different worlds, and I can do a little bit of sketching off from my learning as a settler. I have no indigenous heritage mm-hmm. um, some of the differences, one of them is that in in Western liberalism, the individual has this sacrosanct status that you know it's supposed to be all about the individual, and I have my rights, and I can own land, and I own this land, I can sell this land, this is mine, and if I want to make a great big poisonous mess of this. You know what? That's up to me. It's mine. I can ruin it. And it we act as though we're not connected to each other or to the land and, and that the land is not connected to other land. This is how we've destroyed so much of the planet. In 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 most indigenous cosmovisions that I've ever encountered, the the relation is different. What is sacrosanct first of all is the land. Communities come after that, and individuals come after that. It's inverted. Mm-hmm. So that argument—that you know, I can do whatever I want. Well, someone, honestly, what I hear is people, indigenous people, just say that's sick. It's an illness. That person is out of sync. It's—it's mm-hmm. it's as though in the Western society, you're running around naked in downtown Kingston in the cold, and you're—you're going to be arrested for that. Obviously, you're ill. You don't get what's going on. So it looks the same way. What, what settler societies do and what they understand about the relation of the individual to the collective and the land um, is sick and demented, is seen as sick and demented. So, and then within the political register, this idea of collective rights, there's you know, all these liberal multiculturalist philosophers, they're you know, sort of good social democratics on, on the state's side mm-hmm. when the state was liberal. Um, so there's this whole, which it isn't now, Stephen Harper's regime is obviously, you know, wants to, like, proceed with colonialism apace, right? They're, they're horrible yep. people. So they'll use whatever argument they can in, in order to invalidate these kinds of commitments and to appeal to your mainstream Canadian on the basis of individual rights is an extremely wise appeal.
1: So in terms of representation, uh, political engagement those kinds of things. so is Canada not doing so well in terms of indigenous involvement compared to other countries or
0: the okay so again two different registers. The register that assumes that the nature of the relationship between settler and indigenous societies should be one in which uh, both settler and indigenous peoples are brought into the um, state capitalist public sphere. Um, this is the working together kind of multicultural recognition model Again, that model is absolutely mm-hmm. foreign
1: so I guess i 'm just wondering whether uh, we would we would ever see in Canada something like affirmative action like built into the New Zealand constitution, mm. Maori representation
0: Not without a lot of yeah. of militant struggle, yeah. and even then, the traditionalist indigenous people don 't want it right They want the land back and to be left to conduct their own affairs in their own way, and depending upon how upset they are at all these centuries of colonialism, either want to not deal with the settlers at all, or are willing, and still many people like this, to say, yeah, you came here, here's how we live, this is the way we understand relations with others as individuals and communities, if you'd like to learn about that, perhaps we can live together.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so this is a completely different model a model of autonomy as opposed to a model of state recognition that is one that I part of the work I do is try and work with others to advance that.
1: Has there been anywhere uh, an indigenous success story where good relations were established <laughs> any at any point in history? I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> what a wonderful sad question. <sighs> Not that I know of. Right. Um, what happens is that when here, for example, when the settlers arrived, and you know our our, our people didn't know how to live here, and we we're really stupid, and we didn't know how to get food or any of that, um, there are a lot of stories of of us being protected and brought in and helped mm-hmm. by the indigenous societies that that were here. What happens is, as soon as that disease I was talking about starts to take over, it as soon as you let I'm sorry, but as soon as you let a settler get to the point where they don't need you anymore, they mm-hmm. start killing it, and 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 so. This is part of settler mentality. The you know, Bob Lovelace was just did a lecture for my Devs One Hundred class and he was talking about the most important people in, in the military aspect of settlement are not officers, they're not soldiers, they're not kings. They're settler civilians who go out and do the on the ground work. So unfortunately, I don't think settler ideology is autonomy oriented, community oriented land oriented enough to ever do anything other than destroy i I have no faith in it whatsoever
1: has there been kind of a best case scenario somewhere or
0: from the perspective of of establishing different relationships based on autonomy the one most commonly cited these days is the zapatista movement they have an army Mm -hmm. that army is not used to attack anyone but to defend their territory And to keep dead power, as I call it, and the state form and capitalism out, so they can they can continue to develop their own institutions. Um, they were quiet for quite a few years. They've just recently started making noise again. Uh, we'll see what comes of it. There, you know, 1994 till today is a long time mm-hmm. in terms of radical struggle of any sort. Most things are gone in weeks. Some last months. The occasional one lasts a few years. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the forces of oppression and repression are, are too fierce. So. You know, people like me tend to cite the Zapatistas as, as right. something you can look at and see as a somewhat of a success story.:
1: The next interview I'll air is with Queen's Professor Peter Campbell, who gave me some historical context of the situation or experience of Aboriginal Canadians today. Like Professor Day, Professor Campbell emphasized the importance of land and collectivism to Aboriginal peoples, and how this concept is in conflict with most Canadians' Western liberal democratic values. So, in his book *The Unjust Society*, Harold Cardinal posed the question: Have other Canadians been led to this citizenship over a path of broken promises and dishonored treaties? Can you tell me a little bit about these broken promises, dishonored treaties? I know it's a very long story, but maybe some of the the most base elements of the colonialism and the decolonization.
3: Well, I think I think there's. uh, I guess there's. I guess there's. Two issues. Um, one is Aboriginal lands that have never been lost in war and that Aboriginal people have never given away in treaties. Mm-hmm. Now that's a m- bigger issue in areas of the country, Br- British Columbia, mm-hmm. for example, than it is in. Uh, for ex- you know, in the in the Maritimes, for example, or on the or on the prairies, that's that's one issue. The other issue is, and Aboriginal peoples who actually entered into treaties, and this and this is what many non-native Canadians don't really understand, is that there's a perception out there that they're demanding lands that they never had any. Right to or any reason to claim. And and in fact, um, much of this has to do with treaty lands that were agreed to and that Aboriginal people never got. Treaty lands that um, have been expropriated over time through, they've been expropriated for railway right-of-ways, they've been expropriated for highway right-of-ways, they've been expropriated to build army bases during during times of war, the list of ways in which Aboriginal lands have been expropriated is is it's almost it's almost endless, um, and so that you have situations um, at, at Oka where I mean I mean the people there have what something like one percent of the you know of the land that i mean it's it's an you know as you know it's a long long story that mm-hmm. goes back to yeah. you know the 18th century and has to do with a you know the, it was a, a, a area that the sulpicians uh worked in um the, the catholic order at at one time and and it uh, you know it's just uh, the details are are really yeah. it's it's yeah. A, it's, a, it's a complex history but you know now we're looking at roughly 1%. I think i think the
1: of the land that they were initially uh, that, that was originally okay. part of it. it's
3: not. It's not that they were ever. It's not that they were so much originally promised okay. it, but it was part of the original grant right. that the you know to this to to this Catholic order, um, and you know if you take six, you know Six Nations territory at, at Brantford, I think they you know where the where the Caledonia dispute has been going on. I th- I think I think the 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 people there. Now, I mean, it's down to something like four percent or five percent of that original of that original land. Now, you know, to be to be historically honest about it, at times, uh, as at Six Nations, right, the community has sold lands in return for money that they were then able to put towards education or, or health and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, it's not simply a case that it was. It was always Aboriginal people getting swindled mm-hmm. by white people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, actually, it, it, it's actually much more complex than that in, in, in many cases. But it's basically, okay, mm-hmm. lands that were never surrendered in war or through treaty right. or, you know, not just promises that were made, mm-hmm. right, at the time of treaty negotiations. But in writing, that were late, were later lands that were never delivered. Lands that were that were later taken away through a very complicated mm-hmm. series of, of.
1: And I know even in the original treaty treaty making process, there was discrepancy between Aboriginal understanding of what was being said solely like linguistically. Uh, I know there were language barriers and things like that that made it even more difficult to include substantive Aboriginal input in the treaty making process. So. And then has it kind of just deteriorated since then? Even,
3: yeah, you're ab- you're absolutely right. Right, the problems begin immediately. Right, they begin as part of the treaty making process itself, um, because Aboriginal people didn't so much understand this as a kind of done deal. Right. Right. In the, <laughs> you know, as the as the Crown negotiators mm-hmm. thought, they Aboriginal people perceived themselves as to be interested. To be entering into a long-going reciprocal right. relationship. Yeah. Okay? And we see this right now with, with the Idle No More movement, and mm-hmm. people say, well, why does Theresa Spence want to meet with the Governor General? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, there's an historical reason yeah. for that. And it, and it has a, a symbol as a symbolism and a meaning that goes much much beyond Theresa yeah. Spence wanting to meet with the Governor General yeah. that, that most non-Aboriginal Canadians don't don't understand it just to them it just seems kind of pretentious or ridiculous or right. you know you know but, or but that it's
1: just a political figure uh, or it's, it's not a, the, the significance the, of the sig- position it, in canada's it's, history exactly
3: yeah. it's exactly and 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 so this is uh, you know something as i say that many many non-aboriginal right. canadians just don't just don't understand
1: right so kind of just moving on i'm going to start off with some context for our listeners conceptions of Aboriginality or or what it means to be Aboriginal vary among Aboriginal Canadians themselves. But the dominant view in the present day is, regardless, is uh, markedly inconsistent with the kind of pan-Canadian nationalism that we see Anglophones not even espousing but passively adopting because we don't really identify with the Anglophone nation. So Aboriginal Canadians, and again, this is just for the listeners, assert that collectively their Aboriginality should be acknowledged as a unique identity that forms a distinct nation within the broader Canadian community. Um, and Harold Cardinal again wrote that Aboriginal Canadians gladly accept the challenge to become participating Canadians to make to take a meaningful place in mainstream Canadian society. However, they're at the same time acutely aware of how their traditions are being eroded and. Uh, and how and the threat of assimilation and the loss of their distinct identity. Um, so the unjust society in which he made those, those statements was written in response to the Canadian government's policy at the time under Pierre Trudeau and Minister of Indian and Northern Development, Indian Affairs and Northern Development, mm-hmm. Jean Chrétien. So they posed their, their policies in a document known as the White Paper, uh, in which proposed to abolish the reserve system and the Indian Act, effectively denying Aboriginals' distinct status in Canada. So my question, my first question is, would there, this might be silly, I don't know, but would there ever be in Canada another white paper, or has the issue of abolishing the Indian Act become something like the issue of abortion, where just politicians won't touch it?
3: Oh, um, there, are, there are ongoing right. <laughs> uh, efforts to, to get rid of the Indian Act. Um, that are coming from both non-native Canadians okay. and Native Canadian and Aboriginal Canadians. You know, it's 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 a huge question. I suppose that one of the things I would say um, is is that the relationship between who Aboriginal people are, and now of course this is much more an issue with with you know Aboriginal people. Registered as registered Indians with you know the Department mm. of Indian Affairs, um, than it is for you know the Métis people or, or the Inuit or non or non-status people, um, in you know in in, in some ways, um, but for them, their identity is this incredibly complex <laughs> amalgam of who they are historically and culturally as a people and who they are as defi- you know as defined by the Canadian state right and you know aboriginal people themselves you know in the best of all possible worlds would not want to be caught yeah. in that in that that kind of situation but but it is it's the reality right and and it's not it's not possible for them to simply say okay i you know i want to get rid of yeah. my identity as an indian yeah. as defined by the canadian state yeah. and just become aboriginal as defined yeah. by my culture and who and yeah. who i want to be right mm-hmm. it's just not that simple and and this is um you know, even even with things like in in 1985 with Bill C 31 and the restoration of, of the status of Aboriginal women who, right who lost their status right. by marrying non non-sta- by non status men, yes, that was a good thing, but it actually continued some forms of discrimination whereby, for example, the grandchild if you take a brother and a sister in a family, whereby it's quite pot- likely that the the grandchildren of the brother will retain their status but the grandchildren right. of the of the sister will not and and so those are the kinds of things it's that are extremely complicated the problem is is that this relationship is so complex that there is no it it, it is impossible to bring in legislation no matter how well intended, that does not have some negative consequence. Mm-hmm. It is you simply cannot do it. The other point I would make, and this is, and I'm building off the you know points that have been made by by Jim Miller and other historians of Aboriginal history, is that you know we had this we got rid of the white paper in 1969 mm-hmm. and we were going to get rid of the Indian Act and the Department of Indian Affairs and, and you know Trudeau and Kraytjian were going to transfer responsibility from the federal government to the provincial government and there's this perception that that was yeah. defeated well, the reality is that when you get beyond some of the language that is used right and you look at let's look at self-government for example and you take the example of a, of a native reserve that is next door to a, a, a town or a city, right? Well, you don't have a sewer and water system and you, and you want to put in a sewer and water mm-hmm. system. Well, and it's going to be partially funded, you know, through the federal government or the, and the provincial governments. Well, what are you going to end up doing? Creating a whole separate system? Or are you going to link into the existing sewer and water mm-hmm. system in the local mu- municipality? Well, financially at least, it makes much more sense to link into the system of the local municipality. Once you've done that, right? In terms of your relationships mm-hmm. with government in terms of the financing of that, you have you're connected with the provincial government primarily, <laughs> not the federal government. So that in fact, some of the things that were suggested by the white paper in 1969 are happening through, kind of through the back door, but we call it self-government. Right. Right? So that it's, it's actually, as I say, I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm starting to (laughs) sound like a broken record, but it is, it is so complex and Mm -hmm. and it's so, it's so easy to say, well, there's a problem and th- and this is this is the solution right um, and, and it also reminds me of, of right that you know it, it also ties into the idea that Aboriginal people themselves mm-hmm. are a problem mm-hmm. right and here's a problem and you know and here's yeah. and here's the answer right and and it's in yeah. the real world that it, it's just not
0: that straightforward.
1: Some of this segues into my next question, which was, um, the government of the day, Trudeau, Chrétien, they were not ill-intentioned, I don't think, but the white paper did not incorporate Aboriginal input, and it's also kind of patronizing in its language. Have we moved beyond that now at all? Have we come, in terms of the, the nature of the government's discourse with Aboriginal Canadians,
3: Okay. <laughs> Funny you should ask that question because I brought something. What, what I have here is a document that's been put out as part of the, land, the Algonquin land claim in, in eastern Ontario, okay? And in the world of Queen's University, right, and all of us who are, you know, we're multiculturalist and we're anti-racist and we're supporters of Aboriginal people, and of course, how can you be opposed mm-hmm. to this land claim after the Algonquin yeah. people have been fighting for 250 years. and we can we can romanticize this process or we can look at what is actually happening, right between this is a document I have a document yeah. here a December 2009 document that was signed by a negotiator for the Ontario government, a negotiator for the federal government and by the Algonquin negotiator, okay? You read down this list, there's a, there's a, you know, under objectives for land selection, there's, you know, six initial points. And then there's another section. Additional objectives guiding the land selection process are, number one, to give priority to lands having potential for development. Is number one, development. The reality is, from British Columbia to Cape Breton Island, is that the development that's going on today is taking the form of casinos, shopping malls, housing developments. That's, that's the reality, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there we start with to give priority to lands having potential for development. We have to go down to number five, to promote long-term environmental, social, and economic well-being. Six, to consider the Algonquin interest of protecting Mother Earth and the water, mm-hmm. Okay. Mother Earth is down at the, bo- down at the bottom of yeah. the page. The next one, to consider the need to protect and conserve the wildlife and the biological productivity
2: mm-hmm.
3: of the land. Not the biological diversity right. of the land, the biological productivity of the land. This, you know, uh, if you look at the language that's being used here, and I hope I've, I've sort of jotted some things yeah. down, what we're doing with this land claim, we're building a stronger economy. Mm-hmm. Okay. New opportunities for investment and economic development. And my favorite, increasing investor confidence. We're talking about, right, there's 100 acres that the, uh, the Algonquins are going to take over of crown land, this two or 300 yards from the house that I grew up in. You know, it's not a place where you're going to be, yeah. right, what does this land have to do with increasing investor confidence, right? I mean, this sounds like the CAO of the Chase Manhattan Bank, right? And
1: without that language, it probably would not have gone through. They
3: are selling this land claim, right, as a vehicle, right? The Algonquins have become a vehicle for getting eastern Ontario out of its historic status as an economic backwater. Mm. Based, and you can And you can call this whatever you want. You can use whatever language you want about it. But that's basically what's going on
1: here. Now, I'm just going to kind of take a different tack. What about representation of Aboriginal Canadians in government? Do they want it? Should we, I mean, do you think that we should be looking for an affirmative action policy in order to increase representation? Or do, are they mainly seeking self-government, aspects of self-government, rather than ways to meaningfully participate in our current System.
3: That's not an issue on which I feel it's kind of evasive, but I don't feel comfortable mm-hmm. answering that okay, question yeah, on fine. behalf of Aboriginal right. people, but as a socialist, it kind <laughs> of reminds me i mean there's been a long debate on the historic debate on the left about participating in elections right within the capitalist system or or, or functioning yeah. you know outside outside of the system um i would i mean I would simply say. You know that I th- I think that uh, I would I would encourage Aboriginal people who are interested in this question mm-hmm. to you know to look at some of the examples from mm-hmm. the left to you know carefully weigh um, mm-hmm. you know the the pros and cons of, of operating mm-hmm. you know, of operating within the system because obviously Ab- Aboriginal people are just like everyone else in Canada right I mean yeah. there's the the full range of uh, political of, of political and, views, and yeah. I mean, there there are Aboriginal people who believe quite passionately in in you know in, in participating in electoral politics, and and there are you know guys mm-hmm. in the Mohawk warrior society who <laughs> right, who don't who don't want to have any, you know who don't want to have anything to do with it. So so that I my sort of my my sort of immediate response is to stay away from you know giving a. A, a generalized right. answer, you know, answer to that question, because as again, and I'm going to come back to this yeah. point, it's, it's it's enormously complex, and yeah. and, and I think yeah. that Aboriginal people themselves make the you know make their own choices mm-hmm. and, and, and and pursue their own goals, um, you know, to the best of their ability, mm-hmm. um,
1: and they're a diverse group within. Well, the, sure, yeah, Exa- ex- exactly. And
3: there can be and there can be reasons for. A specific Aboriginal people in one area of the country to be more focused yeah. on on electoral politics, mm-hmm. and, and Aboriginal people in in in, other, in another area of the country to be to be more focused on working, um, you know, outside outside the mm-hmm. parliamentary system.
1: So this kind of is a similar question, but uh, what do you think, just in your opinion, will be the key to kind of improving relations between the government of Canada and Aboriginal Canadians? For example, I was thinking, will a new generation of Aboriginal Canadians uh, be more politically engaged than their parents and grandparents, or should we, as as anglophones, benevolent anglophones, <laughs> uh, be looking to help Aboriginal youth in communities to engage more in in local government and and be interested in politics and and community development, or is that something that should come with from within?
3: Well, I think it. it I think it does need. I think it does need to come from within my own politics, uh, and I realize that this you know in terms of mainstream politics in Canadian society puts me I'm, you know <laughs> I'm kind of out of sight over there you know on the on the left um, but I in fact I in fact do not oppose armed struggle by Aboriginal people mm. and I know this sounds maybe even kind of you know airy fairy but my base starting position is that for all the changes uh, that have happened and there have been significant changes, um, the bottom line is, and, and if you listen, if you really listen to whatever ab- most aboriginal people are saying, they're saying, we are still trying to destroy them. Hmm. And it's true. It, re- it really is true. Um, most of us would be happier if they would just hmm. go away. And disappear, right? I mean, that's the honest truth. And if Aboriginal people disappeared tomorrow, I don't know what percentage of the Canadian population would notice, and a smaller percentage of the Canadian mm-hmm. population would care. And and that and that's the truth. Um, Aboriginal peoples are being wiped out all over the world. In the age, I mean, this is the great irony of the age of diversity, right? Um, we spend all our time as academics at Queen's University defending. Black people defending people of color. Well, the problem is there is no black people. There is no people of mm-hmm. color. And as and while we've been busily defending black people from the culture of whiteness at Queen's University, and you, you can tell that my <laughs> my bitterness about this politics is starting to come out. Um, you know, actual, you know, real cultures, languages, religions, right? In 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 Africa and er- and elsewhere in the world, are being Bulldozed yeah. by 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 globalization and quote unquote development, yeah. right? And that's and that's the reality, you know. I think by and large there has there has to be powerful extra parliamentary protest. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you can you can see it. I mean, I saw a student in the Queen's Journal last week say, "Well, Idle No More is okay as long as it doesn't inconvenience mm-hmm. me," right? And and this is we're still saying to Aboriginal people as, as, as a society, right? You know, get off the booze, pull yourself off by your bootstraps, do something, but before you, but before you do that, okay, let's get, you know, let's, let's clarify the ground rules here. You see, you can do this and this and this, mm-hmm. but you can't do this and this and this, right? And in significant ways, we are still treating Aboriginal people as if they're children, right? We, we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. And I would, and I would say that in the in the big picture, that you know, I I often think of uh, you know, crazy horse fighting the U.S. cavalry back in the eighteen seventies, right, and and to a significant extent, indigenous people still have the same choice that he had,
2: right?
3: Mm-hmm. You fight, was, you yeah. you fight and die, or you wait around to be you know to be slowly assimilated and and. You know, I believe something like 60, 70% of, of status Indian women now live off reserve, right? Who, who are many of them going to marry, right? Um, there's, there's predictions. Uh, I mean, ab- the, the, the number of Aboriginal people has increased significantly in, in, in recent decades. But, in fact, if you look at the long-term impact of the Indian Act and, and how ab- Aboriginal status Indians qualify to be registered, right, um, that trend will probably start to turn around hmm. in about 50 years, and there is a... Aboriginal ab- 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 B- people themselves believe that registered Indians at some point in the future may, in fact, disappear. Mm. I think what we've demonstrated in this generation for all our rhetoric of all our talk about you know, diversity and multiculturalism and this kind of thing, that at the end of the day, Aboriginal people have to, have to rely on themselves. Mm-hmm. Because I think pushed most of us pushed to the wall are going to walk away, mm-hmm. right? I mean that's that's the reality, and and I think that I don't I don't think it's it's an either or situation. I think Aboriginal people need as much representation within the political system as they can get, but I don't think that they can ever abandon, you know, right. the kind the kind of actions that right. that that Idle No More is is, right. is you know is, is engaged in. And, and I will say, and I will say that for all the disadvantages that Aboriginal people face, they have one real strength right and that's patience patience in an increasingly impatient world. And I often I, you know I think when I think of this, I sometimes think of the old uh, there's a, an old Chinese proverb that says, right the ox is slow, but the earth is patient right? And I think and I think that in a sense, if Aboriginal people can you know, continue to be like the earth, <laughs> you know, I think I think in the long run, I think in the long run, they're, they're going to win, mm. you know. Aboriginal people, you know, not to say that it's the same thing, but Aboriginal people need to remind themselves every once in a while that they've been dealing with 500 years of colonialism. They're still 200 years behind the Irish. That's and, interesting. Right? And we need to be, you know, and, and, and quite frankly, My position is that we've gotten ourselves into this racialist straitjacket. I mean, we can't do we live we live in a symbiotic relationship, and and we can't do this right right as isolated Mm -hmm. identities, right? I mean, I mean, this has to be about what people think, what people are willing to do, right? It's 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 not about who you you know. It's not about who you are.
1: This it does. This does kind of. Go well into my next question, which which is about current political events. Mm-hmm. Um, just having been talking about, uh, you mentioned Oka earlier, and Idle No More, and the need to keep doing extra parliamentary things. Um, you know, barricades have been set up along passenger railway lines uh, close to Kingston by Aboriginal activists in conjunction with Idle No More, and I suspect that this journal article. Probably had to do with the inconvenience of trains being blocked around Kingston. Yeah, I'm perhaps. not sure. I felt, no, I think it was just. I, I just oh, remember. Okay. I think
3: it was just one student. I, yeah, I, I think I it could was say, more a gen, just a general statement. Yeah, right?
1: no, I know. I've 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 heard talk about you know the inconvenience of, of this, and yes, I guess it's inconvenient. But dot yeah. as, dot. As, dot. As, 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 as you
3: stand out in the freezing cold, yeah. and, I, and I sit in my heated <laughs> car, right? Yeah.
1: So I was—I was, I was going to ask—is there something like another Oka on the horizon ever? Oh, I think. Oh, yeah. I think. I think
3: it's an, that, I think it's inevitable. An, entire. I. I well, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of ineb- word, inevitability yeah. in history. I have, a, I have a colleague in the history department who, you know, says, you know, it's just nothing is inevitable <laughs> in history. Um, but I think I think that it is highly, Probably. highly probable. As, you know, as, as I say, if you look at. Um, where things are going, and and this is one of the reasons why I say that this can't simply be, it, it can't be about the politics of race because Aboriginal society itself is, you know, quite divided. Yeah. And if and if you look at, I mean, there's this you know government legislation dealing with, you know, leasing land, you know, reserve lands, um, you know, you see, uh, uh, on in the Niska Territory, you know, the you know a move to you know, not just Aboriginal people being able to own private property, but non aboriginal people as well. I've already mentioned, you know, the building of casinos and shopping malls and housing developments and this and this kind of thing. And we're seeing a broad based I'm not gonna say it's a conspiracy. I'm not even gonna say call it a campaign, Mm -hmm. but there is a powerful movement that is coming both from non-native society and some Aboriginal people themselves, mm-hmm. right? And this is a sustained attack on the Aboriginal sense of, of, of communal land mm-hmm. ownership. And that's, that's the big picture. And I, and I think it's, it's amazing um, just how pervasive this kind of thing is. I mean, a few weeks ago I saw a notice for an article. I haven't actually read the article. But the author, who I believe is non-Aboriginal, is now making the argument that 10,000 years ago, Paleo-Indians, okay, and and this is crucial, not that they were traders, which they were, but they were entrepreneurs. Hmm. They were incipient or proto-capitalists. Hmm. And what we're seeing here, this is a sustained effort it's to literally rewrite the history of yeah. Aboriginal society. Look, Tom Flanagan, you know who's this non-native spearhead of this, and you know his ally his partner is Manny Jules, the former chief from you know BC Interior, um, you know, and and they're they're you know spearheading this this kind of, of campaign. Um, turns out, you see, the Aboriginal communal land ownership was right Marxist, right? Mm-hmm. They made this up, right Marxist. Basically invented this, right? Look, you know, this. You know, I just, i you know, I'm getting kind of, I get kind of, you know, worked up about this stuff. But I mean, I, I, I'm fascinated by it at the same time, and, you know, trying to, look, Marx and Engels studied Lewis Henry Morgan's study of the Iroquois. Came up with all these theories yeah. about, you know, these societies are pro capitalist. The Iroquois got enlisted in the cause of supporting Marxist revolution. Okay, did they romanticize this? Yes, right? Did they idealize it? Yes. Did Aboriginal people have forms of private property? Yes, they did. But it depends on whether you're talking about the Aboriginal people of the Pacific coast or you're talking about the Algonquian people of this area, mm-hmm. right? Um, but this whole, but there's this sustained effort now, to argue that basically Aboriginal people were just, you know, they were just kind of proto-capitalists, right? <laughs> and there's and there's this kind of this argument about mm. about you know the, attempting to break down this the, the Aboriginal um, belief in in in, you know, in in the in the collective, yeah. right? And this and this has a long history too, right? I mean, Aboriginal people were referred to as communists, in the, mm. as you know, in the nineteenth yeah. century. And there's this association of, you know, Aboriginal people who support communal, you mm. know, forms of, of property, you know, with with the left. And that's and that's how you, I mean, if you want to discredit something, mm. right, associate it with the left, yeah. which is which is exactly what what Flanagan and and, and Jules are doing. And people buy this stuff, mm. right? Because they right they buy it. Some Aboriginal people are buying it, right? Oh. Um, because you know, <laughs> to go back to back, go back to my earlier point about about the majority of Aboriginal people now living off reserve, right? What's you know that seems to be the trend? How do you keep Aboriginal people on the reserve? Yeah. Right. Well, yes, you do have to have you, you you do have to create ways for people to live decent lives, mm-hmm. right? how can I we can't oppose that okay but let's also acknowledge that a deal's being made with the devil here Mm -hmm. and you know once this I mean I I'm not you know not to make a sort of you know you know simple slippery slope argument but once aboriginal people start down this road it's going to be I'm I'm not sure if it's even possible to to turn around now right once you start down that path you know where does it go Will this have benefits for Aboriginal people? Of course. So the white paper would have had yeah. be- some benefits for Aboriginal people as well, right? So this isn't just this isn't just you know as as many people want to believe a white Aboriginal issue. It is also this is a, a, right. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm anti, I mean, I'm anti-development. De- this kind of development myself, right? I mean, I have more in common with some Aboriginal people than I have with other white people, or they mm-hmm. have with. With, with other Aboriginal people, right? Yeah. I mean, this again. This is not. You can't understand yeah. what's going on here in terms of quote unquote racial categories. Yeah, it's much. It's much more complex.
2: Than
1: yeah, that. we have talked a little bit about self government, but I haven't asked you yet. Like, what is your perception of the quality or or the nature of current Aboriginal self government in Canada? Is it, is it effective? Is it how independent are Aboriginal communities?
3: There are six hundred. Right. 30, 660, depending on, on who you read, um, communities, reserves, First mm-hmm. Nations, you know whatever you know whatever the terminology. And I think um, I, you know perhaps I'm going to sidestep that <laughs> that question again um, by saying there there will literally you know as if you know as the process continues there will literally be as many forms of self government as there are Native mm-hmm. communities. Right? That's true. And to and to generalize, uh, and this is not an issue. I mean, I have not. I mean, I have some knowledge of the of the niska, for example. But this is not an issue that I have studied in enough detail mm-hmm. to be making, um, you know, generalized generalized statements about it. What I will say, I would reiterate the point I made earlier that some things are being called self government, right? Right. Yeah. That sound really good, right? But when you actually look at the form that that self government is taking it's actually right. introducing some of those older ideas yeah. you know through through the back door
1: right
3: I mean, I mean sometimes when i listen to you know people talk in in this society it's it's almost as if white people and aboriginal people live in different mm-hmm. worlds right you know if you 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 know i mean it, in some respects it's true okay but right yep. Yep. let's take you know the iroquois foundation story of of turtle island right let's not say oh isn't that nice and romantic and you know and it's so different from you know the hardness and you know whatever else of of white society let's take that seriously yeah this is an island right this planet is an island and you know if you've read jared diamond on on what happened on easter island right jared diamond makes the point it's not just that the indigenous people of easter island cut down every tree on the island mm. and destroyed themselves it's that they knew they were destroying mm. themselves and they went ahead and did it anyway we're doing the same thing mm-hmm. um, and so sorry I mean I'm sort of no. I mean I think I'm gonna come back I'm gonna yeah. you know come back to my you know come back to my original point right mm. as much as we might like to think that we can create something called self-government yeah we live in an island and the reality is, Yes, Aboriginal people live in a symbiotic. Have historically lived in a symbiotic relationship with the land. Well, so so do we, right? right? And we live in a symbiotic relationship with each other. The issue for me is not white Aboriginal, Mm -hmm. right? The issue is, look, you know, the CEOs of Toyota and Nissan and Ford, when they look at the Amazon Basin, you know what they see? They see cities. They see a network of highways. They see millions of their cars. On those highways, and people have to understand something. And I know this sounds overblown and melodramatic, okay? But it's true. They will destroy the planet. Mm. They will destroy the planet. You know, and, and stopping this right cannot be done on the basis of yeah. of identity, Race. right? I'm sorry this, you know, for all the good that's been done in the age of multiculturalism and anti-racism, primarily in doing something significant mm-hmm. about white racism, there's no answer here. Mm-hmm. These people have no answer. You know, if you're non-Aboriginal, you can, you can respect Aboriginal people, you can support Aboriginal people, uh, but you can't be Aboriginal mm-hmm. people.
1: Well, I, just, I did want to talk briefly about Bisquet um, Chief Teresa Spence.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, just for the listener, she vowed not to eat solid food on December 11th, and she stuck to her pledge. She demands that Stephen Harper and Governor General David Johnson meet with her, with Aboriginal leaders, for, for substantive and productive discussion, because I believe they did meet, uh, and, and she was unsatisfied with the meeting. Now, interim leader of the of the AFN, the Assembly of First Nations, recently stated that Chief Spence was hurting her own cause. He suggested that her actions aren't going to influence the Prime Minister or push him to meet with Aboriginal leaders. Can you speak to this statement at all? Or do you, do you believe her actions are futile, or are they... Or could they be effective?
3: Well, I think that if you look at the history of the suffrage movement in Britain Mm -hmm. and hunger strikes, um, if you look at Gandhi, if you look at Bobby Sands and, and the Irish Republican hunger strikers, not that hunger strikes don't have, I mean, all human, I mean, this is, you know, we like to believe right, that we do things in the world and they only have good consequences. Yeah. They always have good and yeah. bad consequences. And I'm not saying that there, there aren't downsides to what to what she's doing, right? But to the extent that she has rallied Aboriginal people that ordinarily might not have been together, right, right worked, worked together, um, I think that um, it's been a... It's been a good thing, right? I mean, you can't, you can't look. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm gonna I, I'm gonna well, sort of please, a little they, digre- a little digression here to make you know to make a please point. Please do. Right? Yeah. To make a point. My favorite episode of the Lone Ranger, <laughs> right? nobody watches the Lone Ranger anymore. I, I used to watch the Lone <laughs> yeah. Ranger when I was a kid. Okay, and of course he had his faithful sidekick Tonto, who was yeah, Canadian. Yeah. And of course the Lone Ranger was always getting into trouble. So in this one episode, the Lone Rangers in Toronto trouble. Tonto rides into town, and when he rides into town, the sheriff is outside the sheriff's office, and he's organizing a posse right, to go after some bank robbers or something. So, Tonto's trying to get his attention. And finally, the sheriff turns to Tonto and says, don't bother me, Indian. Can't you see I'm busy? That idea of, right, don't bother me, Indian. Can't you see I'm busy? In a sense, it wasn't so much that white people were, most white people were evil. Right? It's that it's just that we had a, we had something to do, yeah, right? Like Things to do, and they were in the way, right? You know, we've talked about in my class. I talk about what happens. Jim Miller and other <laughs> Aboriginal historians talk about what happened to. Aboriginal people after the War of eighteen twelve and 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 the role they played as military allies and you know and I make the point that
1: when they were useful
3: yeah so when they were useful right and and you know and we may be sitting here as Canadians not Americans because of Tecumseh and 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 the Aboriginal warriors and so in a sense if Aboriginal people are not constantly you know I I, I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to you know to put it positively but. To, to remain as part of the consciousness of most mm-hmm. of most Canadians, you have to be doing this every really, single day. Really appeal to their own
1: self-interest, yeah. really. Sorry? Appeal to their own self-interest. Like, do something that, that feeds the settler self-interest, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Things that are in the best interest of the settlers, I guess.
3: So, I think, I don't think it's, I don't think a hunger strike is the answer. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, as well as uniting Aboriginal people, it's also created you know div, you know has created divisions as right. well but look you know at the end of the day you know here here we are you know criticizing her for what she well she's done something yes, right yeah
1: thank you for listening to right of reply on CFRC 101.9 FM the preceding were interviews with queen's professors richard day and peter campbell if you'd like to hear more right of reply visit www.rightofreply Podomatic.com. That's P-O-D-O-M-A-T-I-C Before concluding today's show, the Queen's International Affairs Association would like to share a few announcements. Submit your internationally themed articles and opinion pieces to the Queen's International Observer for publication in its third issue. Submissions are due next Wednesday, January 30th to contact at queensobserver.org. Also consider attending the Global Passport Internship Fair next Monday, January 28th, from 2 till 6pm. The fair is located in Wallace Hall in the JDUC and will feature booths and information packages on non-profit organizations as well as government agencies working in Canada and abroad. Launching at the fair, there will also be an online database of internships updated year-round with new opportunities for Queen students. Tune in to the next write of Reply on Wednesday, February 13th.
0: 1,000 CFRC programmers agree
2: Radio won't forget your birthday
0: Radio will call you the next
2: morning Radio will call your boss Pretending it's your mother
0: When you need a day off But can't bring yourself to lie That you're sick At this time of year, your radio station wants you to know that it loves you.
1: Radio will call you... Oh,
2: sorry, the second one, right?
1: (laughs) Got
0: internet? If so, then you needs to be checking out the CFRC website. Cyber steer your favorite internet browser over to cfrc.ca where you can listen live to our streaming broadcast, access previous shows from up to three months ago, find information on the station and its staff, cruise the programming schedule to find out when your favorite shows are on, a community calendar showcasing events happening in the Kingston area, and of course keep up to date with everything that's happening here at CFRC. cfrc CFRC.ca, this is your Cyber signal.